Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. If you open your Bibles, please, to Psalm chapter 1, or the first psalm. We're going to be spending our time looking at that. I've mentioned a number of times when looking at the Psalms, one of the most difficult things can be to get an outline, an adequate outline of the Psalm. And without a, an outline, it's very hard to preach, at least in, in my mind, in the way that the Lord kind of set me up or built me. But with Psalm 1, there's a very, very definite outline. And what I'll do is I'll go ahead and read it uh, very quickly, like I did earlier. And uh, you, you'll see this outline almost jump out. There, there's a main theme, and that is there are basically two paths that the Lord is describing here. And uh, he's basically doing different contrasts between these two people and their ways of life and the ultimate uh, fate of these people. He begins this way, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season." And its leaf does not wither, and whatever it does, he, whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You, know, you can see, again, just by a, a casual reading of this, there's a very definite outline, very definite themes that run through this. Uh, verse 1 and 2 begin with a, a contrast between the life of the righteous and the life of the wicked. Uh, verse 3 and 4 expand this contrast and illustrate it. Uh, one is being illustrated with a figure of water and trees, and the other with chaff, something that the wind drives away, it says. And verse 4 contrasts not their current life, but their future life. One will be blessed, and one will stand under judgment and destruction, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So there's a very workable outline that we can use as we go through this psalm. I think it's helpful to see how various commentators agree with this and how they state. What I'll do is I'll read three quotes from three different commentators, how they explain this contrast as we begin before we go in and actually start explaining it. One man says this, the Hebrew Psalter opens with an instructional psalm that maps the future as a choice between two different paths. These two paths are not characterized by their terrain or geography, but by the character of the people who tread them. Down one path walk the wicked, sinners, and scoffers. Their eventual destination is judgment and unhappiness. Down the other path march the righteous who bring with them the Torah, the law of the Lord. Their end is happy because the journey is under the protection of the Lord. Another man says rather succinctly, the psalmist describes the blessed person who leads an untarnished and prosperous life in accord with God's word and contrasts the worthless life of the ungodly who will perish in the day of judgment. Another one says, finally, Psalm 1 divides humanity into the righteous and the wicked. 
the blessed and the cursed, and it shows the lifestyle, fruit, and final judgment of each. And I think all three of those quotes uh, summarize very well what is being done here, taking the lives of two groups of people, uh, two, uh, one, a righteous man who meditates on the Lord, who loves the Lord and serves the Lord, and another who simply doesn't, rejects the word of the Lord and the Lord himself, and the difference in their lives here and in the lives to come, the judgment that they will face. The psalm starts with the word blessed in describing the righteous, and it is a wonderful word, a deep word that is very uh, difficult to express in all of its fullness in English. It denotes a joyful spiritual condition of those who are right with God and the pleasures and satisfaction that are derived from that condition. Uh, It is balanced, a joyful life marked by success, fortune, happiness, and purpose. Often we translate this word happy, uh, and I I don't raise any major objections to that, but normally when we think of happy, we think of somebody whose outward circumstances are going well. Things are going well for you, and you're happy. That's sort of, it may not be the definition, that official definition, but it's how we often think of the idea of being happy. Well, everything's going right for me, I'm happy. Where this blessed person is blessed no matter what circumstances he are in. It's not conditioned on its outward circumstances. There can be uh, joy, there can be uh, trials, there can be difficulties, there can be uh, disappointments in life, and this person's life will still be described as blessed, where he may not be described particularly as happy in the modern sense we use it. Again, a person may be happy because he has a good job, a good marriage, a nice house, a good, uh, or good health, but his circumstance, when his circumstances change, he will lose often that sense of happiness. While the word blessed man, he will maintain an internal state of well-being even if those outward circumstances change for the worse. He will still be blessed despite his poverty, his lack of health, living conditions, or human relationships because the source of that satisfaction is not from those external features of his life, but it comes from the Lord himself. It is a blessing the Lord himself gives, not a blessing that uh, personal items or personal situations bestow. This blessed man is described uh, by the way, not by what he does, but by I'm sorry, the blessed man is then described by the way, not of what he does, but by what he does not do in contrasting with three different people, the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer. In verse two, it says, or continuing verse one, blessed is the man who does not, so he's going to describe negatively what this man does not do, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. So there's three people that he's contrasted with, the sinner, uh, the the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer. And often commentators make a big deal out of the, the differences between these. The, the uh, wicked are, are this group of people, the sinners are this group of people, and the scoffers are this group. And they draw uh, very distinct lines between them. And I really think that they're all the same people. There, there may be some difference. I think the worst one is the scoffer. But I think the, the wicked and the sinner are, are pretty much the same uh, two people. And the scoffer is just somebody who is, a, who is wicked and sinner, but has taken it further to where he now expresses verbal abuse towards the Lord and towards the people of God. The wicked are often those who remain outside of the covenant of God due to their unbelief. They do not subject themselves to the law of God 
and are themselves under his judgment. Uh, their life is marked by guilt, turmoil, instability, uh, a lack of peace, uh, meaning a lack of stability and blessing that comes with the covenant relationship with the Lord. These people are outside of the covenant. Isaiah 57, 18 through 21, God says this, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. The, the here, here, the here, person referred to here as the him is the the person who is under the covenant who God is going to forgive. I have seen his ways but will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and the near, says the Lord. And I will heal him, but, he says, the contrasting now, those who are inside the covenant, but the wicked are not are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So the wicked are those who have no peace. Their life is a constant turmoil. Uh, it's chaotic. There's no peace, tranquility, or stability, but rather there is uh, chaos, uh, turmoil, and instability. Uh, you can see the contrast between the two. One's life is marked by peace, and the other one is marked by a lack of peace. Sinners, on the other hand, uh, we all know that they are, are those simply who don't live up to the standards of God's law. They break God's law at some point and to some degree. Again, their life is also mentioned as a life of chaos, a life of instability, and a life of judgment. They no longer consider God ways their ways. Now, the scoffer, I think, takes this this disobedience and evil to a new height. A scoffer, again, scoffer here, it's more verbal. Uh, we know this because the word scoff is often translated to interpret something or to translate. So there's a verbal element to this word. Uh, They're vicious in their words. They taunt with an attempt to verbally hurt and destroy uh, with their words. Uh, the book of Proverbs says that they are an abomination to the Lord. For whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of folly is sin and the scoffer is an abomination to the Lord. Uh, there, these are three descriptions that we have of the one who, what he does not do, what the one who's blessed does not do. And I, I don't think there's a clear order in these, again, going from bad to worse in the people particularly, but, but there is in the, the, the actual path or the verbs that are taken here. It goes from uh, taking counsel uh, that, which is getting advice, uh, to going down a path, and finally sitting or enter, entering into a mode of life. The idea of walking uh, signifies how one lives morally and ethically. So this person, in their walking, in their choices in life, they're doing what? They're listening to the counsel of the wicked. When they make a choice on which direction in life to go, what to do or what not to do, they, in that step that they take, each step they take, they go to the wicked and seek their counsel, get their advice as what to do, and then walk in that path, take that step. And this doesn't mean it's wrong to take the counsel of an unbeliever. Uh, my dad is an unbeliever, and I call him for certain advice many times, but if we're living our life based on their dictates, based on what they say, what they think, according to their worldview, then we are definitely not going to be a blessed man. The idea of walking shows how one lives morally or ethically. The man's morals or ethics are determined by the counsel of the wicked. The idea of standing here now denotes a, a stopping in the walk, a, a, a stopping at that to a halting uh, to consider the weight given in the path that he is taking. It's not just that he's not just there considering and contemplating the life of a sinner. The evil uh, counsel is practical. The evil in standing is becoming habitual. So we're going from a, a habitual listening and act to a 
to a, to a practical listening to a more habitual life of sin. Sitting, then, is going to be the worst. When you're sitting, you've contemplated a life, and you've decided this is the life that I want. This is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. Uh, the scorner is active and verbal, and his hatred for God is evident in how not only he, he lives, but how he speaks. So that the sitting is the idea of a permanence, a, a lifestyle that is permanent, that has been considered and actively chosen as a direction, as a way to live. Uh, a good example of, of this in describing these people is uh, two, two people that I know. Um, one is a, a childhood friend that goes all the way back to, I think, the eighth grade I met this guy. And uh, he's a Roman Catholic, and uh, he was very conservative for a while. We, we hooked up on Facebook about 10 years ago. He was very uh, going to pro-life rallies and a very conservative Catholic. And then he started going down this woke path and decided to embrace all this, what we would call wokeism. And I think you all know what I mean by that. And he's still a very nice person. I mean, he's still friendly. He's still helpful. He's still a very kind person. When you talk to him, he believes these things, and he presents them to you, but there's not a viciousness to it. There's not a hatred towards those who disagree with him. There's not an attempt to hurt or harm those who are against this. Now, I would call that the sinner or the wicked. Okay, he's embraced something, a life that, that is wrong, that is evil. But yet, I have other friends on Facebook that just the way that they speak, uh, the posts that they make are, are, are blasphemous. They, they love making fun of Christ. They love uh, hurting people with their words. They post things that I know they're doing it just to upset and anger and frustrate the Christians who are going to be reading that post. That would be a scoffer. Their words are there to hurt, to harm, to mock, and, and to upset people and anger people. So one, yeah, he's wrong. There's sin there. There's wickedness there. But he hasn't reached that stage where he now his great desire is to bring as much harm to the Lord and to Christians as he possibly can. That is what the scoffer does. His words are there to hurt, to inflict pain and misery upon the people of God or any who oppose him. And in this description that the psalmist is making, it's not, he's not, it's not good enough simply just to use negative descriptions, what he does not do. He's going to add positive description now, descriptions now. And those positive descriptions are described in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. So the first thing is this man's relationship to the word of God. How does he respond to the word of God? That is a part of his blessedness. Why is he blessed? Well, because he delights in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on that law day and night. His life is blessed because how he responds to the law of God. Now, it's kind of important here to stop and look at what is meant here by the law. Because many times we have different ideas of what this, uh, my glasses keep falling off because this little thing here is bugging me, so I seem distracted, that's why. I'm trying to get it on where it stays. What does the psalmist mean by law here? Because law can mean a number of things in the Old Testament. Uh, it can be, uh, the word we're familiar with, it's the word Torah, 
uh, and there are a number of ways that it's used in the Old Testament. One, it can refer to a simple collection of laws. We, we think of uh, the law or the code of Hammurabi. Uh, the Decalogue would be a law in this sense, or the Pentateuch. It can also refer to uh, simply the first five books of Moses. Often when Jews spoke of the law, they were speaking of uh, the Pentateuch or the law of Moses, those first five books. Or there, there are times in Scripture where it can refer to the whole of Scripture, or it can refer more specifically to uh, instruction, uh, teaching, or learning. And I think what the psalmist means here by the law is the whole of Scripture. Think of when you, when you meditate on God's Word. Uh, how do you do that? Do you take a, a, only a certain section of Scripture that you meditate upon and say, well, I'm only going to think about this part. I'm only going to think about the, the Ten Commandments. That, that, that's what I meditate upon. Or I'm going to only take the, the Lord's Prayer or the Gospels or Paul's Epistles. Or I like the stories of the Bible. I'm only going to meditate upon those. Now, when we meditate upon a Scripture, we meditate on all of it to some degree. You may have certain parts of it that bring you more encouragement and more help and more benefit, but all of it is open for our meditation. Uh, how many of you like to meditate on the opening chapters of Genesis? I, I love reading Genesis and thinking about those opening chapters, the power of the Lord displayed there. Or maybe you like to hear the stories of the patriarchs, of the call of Abraham, the, the sacrifice of Isaac. We go through all of these portions of Scripture in our meditations. Uh, the stories may have a special appeal for you. The law may have special appeal. The words of Christ. But all of it is to be the object of our meditation. So I think when he refers to here by the law, it is whatever was Scripture to him. Obviously, his Scripture was much shorter than what we have today. But all of the Scripture is the object of our meditation. There should be no limits on what we read, what we study, what we memorize regarding the law. Now, there, I agree there are some that are, that are more beneficial than others. I think the, the first nine chapters of Chronicles are genealogies. I don't expect people to spend a whole lot of time meditating upon that. But as Paul says, all scripture is profitable for teaching, for doctrine, for instruction, for reproof. So the man who meditates upon the law meditates upon all of scripture. Now note here as well, there, there's a link between delighting and meditating. Why does he meditate upon the law? Because he delights in it. When there's something that you delight in, you're going to think about that. You're going to recall that and remember that. If you delight in your wife, if you love her and delight in her, then she's going to always be on your mind. If it's your children, it'll be your children. So the things that we delight, but we normally fix our mind to. And the psalmist here delights in the law, in the word of the Lord, in the scripture. Therefore, that is an object of our meditation. And it's what we remember. We have to remember in order to meditate upon it. Uh, Janine and I were having a discussion uh, the other day, we're thinking about going to Fort Worth, visiting Fort Worth. So we're talking about all the places that we went to in Fort Worth. So we didn't duplicate it. And I mentioned this museum that we went to. And she could not recollect the museum. I described what we did. I described pretty much everything about it I could think of, and it was quite a bit. I remember the parking lot. I remember the trip there. I remember the traffic. I remember they had this outdoor restaurant that had this big roof that sort of protruded out over the maybe 20, 30 feet that had no supports. And I remember asking one of the waiters how they did that, and he explained how they did it. So it, it was something that was really fixed in my mind. And I thought, well, why did I remember it? And Geneva didn't. And this isn't a judgment at all. It's just the way I responded. 
I remember it because it was a very delightful time for me. I, I mean, what the exhibits we saw were wonderful. Geneva and I were just starting out in our relationship together. I believe we'd just been engaged. So it was, to me, a, a wonderful time. So I meditated upon that, and this was 30 years ago. I often thought of that trip and what we did there. It was a delight to me. So, again, not judging Geneva, said she should remember it too. It just appealed to me more than it did to her. But the idea of, of delighting in it. And therefore, recalling it throughout my life, throughout these last 30 years, and even uh, today I can think of it and still recall much of what we did. Why? Because I meditated upon it. Why? Because I delighted in that event. So there's a heavy relationship between delighting in something and meditating on something. What we delight in, we will think about, we will consider. And it's also important to understand what the idea of meditation is. Um, we often think of meditation as simply something that, that is purely mental, that we just think of it and you could look at me and not tell that I'm meditating upon. But in the ancient world, it was a little bit different. Um, meditation was something, the, the word actually means to mutter something, to, to actually mumble in a, in a verbal way. And the ancient world... Uh, silent mental activity was something that was very unusual. Normally, when they were thinking about something, they, they muttered it to themselves. Uh, rabbis, you would see walking around, and you see this in New York if you go to some of the orthodox sections of New York City, where they'll walk around with mumbling the law to themselves. Almost, You can almost make out the words that they're, they're, they're saying. I remember Augustine had read a chapter or something in one of his books where I, maybe, maybe in the Confessions, even, where he was in a library, and there was this man who had a book out and was going over the words of the book, but he was doing it silently. And he was puzzled as to what this man was doing because everybody that he saw read and the way he read was you mumbled the words, you, you pronounced them as you went across them, even out loud in a library. And that to him was very puzzling. So the, the meditation here is not that you have to do it verbally, but to the psalmist it would have been something that would have been slightly audible to him and to the people around me. Uh, one of the things uh, Geneva always not jumps at me, but laughs at me about is when I get excited about something uh, and I'm thinking about it, I'll start mumbling. And uh, if I'm thinking about a part of a sermon and, and meditating upon it, what I'm going to say, how I'm going to say it, I'll often kind of mumble or just do it all the time. And uh, th that, that's almost a biblical way of meditating. Not that I'm more biblical than people who don't, but it's just the way our minds work. When we're excited about something, often we'll express it in some way, some verbal way. And that's what the psalmist is talking about here, almost a muttering. Um, it's, a, it's a learning something, a, a remembering it, and then it, it is going through it, chewing on it, and digesting it, and living according to it. One man describes it this way, the spiritual discipline of meditation begins with the memor memorization of divine instruction. Now, I'm not saying, I don't think it's a word-for-word -word memorization. Uh, you can meditate on something that you may not have a word-for-word -word understanding of, but you can have simply a general idea. Many things I meditate upon in a scripture or, or stories or events that I don't have a, a photographic memory of, but I can describe basically what happened in those events. So don't think you've got to memorize large portions of scripture to meditate properly. No, but something has to be retained of the story or of the event or the teaching. 
Again, spiritual discipline of medita- the spiritual discipline of meditation begins with the memorization of divine instruction. So long the way, by the day, or in bed at night, one could recall it and think about it. The hiding of God's word in the heart also requires gaining full understanding of it. Then one can speak about God, speak, about, speak to God about the word, turning its ideas and concerns into prayer. And finally, meditation concludes with self-exhortation, rebuking, exhorting, or encouraging as the case may be. And there are many examples of this, I think, as you read through the Psalms and the scriptures of this taking place, where uh, many of the Psalms, we often think of them as prayer, but I often think of them as meditation, being expressed back as prayer. For example, uh, Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord's the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who oppressed. He may known his ways to the Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. What is the psalmist doing here? He's recalling the works of God. He's recalling what God has revealed, his mighty acts that he's done for the people of Israel. He's recalling uh, the forgiveness that the Lord offers, how he blesses us beyond what we can comprehend. And he's expressing that now to prayer. How did all this start? It started with meditation, of learning these truths, learning what forgiveness is, learning of the acts of God, what he did through the the Exodus, what he did through Genesis, all the great mighty acts he did for his people, knowing them and thinking about them, and then offering that back as praise to God. And it could even come back in another way. We think of it as praise, but take a look at Psalm 42. As a deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while I say to my while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil with me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, what is David doing here? Well, he's recalling certain things about God. You know, the living God, what does that mean? The living God. David knows this. It has meaning to him. And he remembers these things, and yet he looks at his own life And he sees none of the joy or none of the happiness that he should have, that he knows he should have, if he's in a relationship with this living God. And instead of praise, how does David express it? As a complaint. Yeah, there's something wrong here, God. Something's not right with me. Now, what is it? Help me. And the rest of the prayer is David expressing that complaint, that groaning, that outpouring of of sadness, grief, and sorrow. And where does it start? It starts with being able to meditate, to think about God, to know his truth, and, and, and meditate and chew and think and digest that truth. The best example I can think of in meditation is, um, is cows, the way it's cow, cows. My cousin has a dairy farm in upstate New York. You know the, the phrase chewing cud? Well, where that comes from is that cows have a whole bunch, I think seven stomachs. And when they feed the cows, remember would, the cows would be lined up and would put all the hay and uh, grain in front of them. And they would just, I mean, gorge themselves, just suck this stuff down like a, like a vacuum. And you'd come back an hour or two later, and they're all sitting down, and they're still chewing. 
and there's no food in front of them. There's nothing visible for them to eat, yet they're still sitting there just kind of chewing almost like in the back of their mouth. And what happened there was these cows just inhaled this food. It went into their primary stomach, and then they regurgitated it, semi-digested, and now they're chewing it a second time. It's called cud when it comes up a second time. They're chewing it a second time, and then they're swallowing it, and it turns into milk after that. It goes to the other five or six stomachs after that and becomes milk. That's the idea of med- It's kind of gross, but it's the idea of meditation. We take in the word, and we remember it, we digest it, and then we take it in little bits and mull over it. It's like those cows, and there's, there's such a peaceful look on a cow chewing cud. It's just like it's half asleep as it's doing it. And uh, that's the believer as well. We, we, we ingest the word, and then we, in a sense, spit it up and chew on it. We think about it. We mentally review it and analyze it and apply it and then express it back to God. So this is the activity David is describing here. He delights in the law of the Lord in the scriptures and he meditates upon that law day and night. And verse 3 is a beautiful description of what this results in. What kind of man is this who does this? What is the result of this delighting and this meditating? Well, it says he will be, in verse 3, like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The water here is seen in the ancient world as a source of life, and the tree represents a blessed man and the provision, uh, the strength, the permanence, the fruitfulness that this man uh, possesses. The word again, the stream again, is the word of God. Um, it's integrated in the man's life in such a way that it waters the tree and the man is blessed. Again, two illustrations that I hope to, to maybe help this come clear. We've all heard these illustrations before, but, uh, or seen these images here before, but, but they're very powerful figures of speech, the idea of water and the idea of a tree. And, and two illustrations. When we went on a, uh, we used to take Geneva's parents to a, uh, was it Beaver's Bend it was, Geneva? And uh, one year we took them there, and it was in the, the late spring, and it was a very dry spring. That was, we got there, and we're, we like the animal life, even the bugs and the snakes we like. And we got there, and it was none of that. We, we got everything out of the car, got everything set up in the house, and went out, and, and there was no life at all. It was just dry and dead. And Geneva and her parents, they, they took little... The, the, the house sat on a foundation had about a rim about this big where the house was kind of smaller than the foundation, about this high up. And they went and got little things of water, cups of water, and slices of apple and slices of orange and put it all around the house. And within five minutes, you had life. It just came out of the woods. There were butterflies. There were wasps. There were bees. Uh, Eventually, squirrels came. We even saw a a couple deer come up through the woods. But what did that water do? Well, it brought out life. And not spontaneously, but the life came out to that water for its sustenance. That's what this water here does. It gives life wherever it flows. It's like that the little cups of water could draw life out of the forest. Well, the water in this stream provides life to this tree. And then the tree, it provides shelter. It provides fruit. Another illustration, as a child, uh, we had this gigantic oak tree right outside my window. Back then, we had, we had air conditioning, so we slept with the windows open all year round. And it was a big, it must have been, it was about maybe two or three feet in girth. It was just gigantic. And... Um, when I woke up in the morning in the spring and summer, it was just this cacophony of birds singing in that tree. 
And it was beautiful. It first kind of bugged me and annoyed me, but it became a delight to wake up in the morning and hear those birds. And one day, my dad, it was so close to the house, my dad was afraid it was going to, it would have been a, a tree that would have literally cut our house in half if it fell. So one day, my dad cut it down. And I remember waking up the next day, and that life was gone. It, it was quiet. And it was distressful, because one day there was life there, I could see that life, I could hear it, and the next day it was gone. That tree, like the tree here, it provides a shelter for life. It also, it provides fruit uh, for those who are willing to take it. So there's a stability here, there's a fruitfulness here, there's a prosperity here that this tree uh, possesses, that it gives off, and it drives that from the water in the ground, or from the word of God that he delights in and that he meditates upon. One writer says this, The life grounded in the Lord's word is likened to a vibrant tree whose roots are sunk in deep into the life-giving soil of the riverbed. The sense of the verb suggests that the location is intentional. This tree was taken and it was put there intentionally because it, it, it was understood it would be fruitful and uh, profitable there. The tree had either been transplanted there or was planted as a seedling. This image is well suited to the life characterized by the study of the law. The nourishment that sustains the tree is hidden. It is, inter it is, in it is internal nourishment that feeds the life of the tree, drawn up through invisible roots, yet the life, is imparted, the life imparted fortifies the tree against the harsh conditions of Israel's climate to such a degree that it never withers but faithfully bears fruit at harvest time. It's more significant, too, when we consider where this tree is at. It's in a very arid, dry place of Israel, where a tree left out in a field would most likely wither and die. But this tree is by the rivers of the word, and it therefore will flourish and be blessed. So that is what the, the blessed man is. He takes in the word, he learns that word, he meditates upon that word, he applies it to his life. The result is he is stable, he is strong, he is a source of stability for people, a source of fruit. Uh, nothing will, will wither him, whether the river dries up, there's still that underground invisible source of water that will supply the roots, the life that this man needs. The wicked, verse 4 says, are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. So there's a, a very short description of the wicked. We have a very long description, almost three times as long as a description of the wicked. And it's very simple, very precise. They're not like that. Okay? They're not stable. They're not strong. They provide no, no benefits to anybody. Uh, there's no fruit in their lives. Instead, they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Chaff here is the uh, material, the dead, useless material that, that surrounds the, the wheat that is basically taken, and you, you shift, sift the wheat, and the wind comes and blows that chaff away, or chaff away. That is the life of the wicked, the ungodly. It's nothing. It's worthless. Uh, it's temporary. It's fleeting. It's here. It's gone. Disappears. Never to be seen. Then he concludes, therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. So the wicked will stand in judgment. Uh, there's a, they may not see the judgment, but whether they see it or not, it's there. Most wicked people don't go around thinking that they're under judgment. It's happening, but they're not aware of it. Uh, there's a, these videos they show of these guys hunting pigs. And I don't know why they do this, but they, they get in a tree. 
and put food under the, the tree, and they wait for hours for these pigs to come. And they've got this long uh, spear that they drop down on the pig. And the pigs are eating, they're happy, they're content. They have no knowledge, no sense uh, of the danger that they are in, that in a moment will be inflicted upon them. That's how the wicked are. That there's that spear of judgment hanging over their head that at any moment the Lord can release and it'll come down upon him. That's how they live their life. Whether it's recognized or not, it is there. They will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The assembly of the righteous here is a figure for the covenant people of God, the people that God has blessed, he's made promises to, promises that he will give and keep. These people are not a part of those promises. They're not partakers in those promises. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So finally, in verse 6, he summarizes everything. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The idea of knowledge here is the idea of not simply knowing about something. Or, okay, I, I'm cognizant that they are there and what they are doing. The idea of know here is a far more intimate term. Remember when, when Adam and Eve were introduced, he, uh, he, uh, he knew his wife, that that's a reference to intimacy, deep intimacy and care. Uh, the Lord knows his people. Uh, he chooses his people. Some people say it's actually synonymous with the word chosen, and I believe there's some evidence for that, but there's an intimacy. He knows everything about them. He knows every hair on their head. He knows everything that they do, everything they will do. He knows all their weaknesses, all their strength, all their secret sins. He knows these things, yet he still is their God. He still considers them to be the righteous. But the way of the wicked, it is a way that simply will perish. It'll be gone. There'll be simply nothing left. Like the chaff, once it's blown up and taken by the wind, uh, it, it's gone. There's no tracing it. So the, the righteous, the Lord knows them. The Lord has his hand upon them. He keeps them and protects them. Where the wicked, it is not so. The Lord's aware of them, but there is no intimacy there. There is, there is a way of perishing. And what the psalm does is it basically it provides choice, two ways, very clearly. One way, the way of the righteous, and the way of the unrighteous. And how does that, what does that hinge upon, those two paths? Well, how we respond to the Scripture what we believe about the scripture and what we do with that scripture. Not just simply reading it and understanding it, but living that scripture. The righteous man doesn't just know the scripture. He's able to understand it. He's able to reason with it and apply that scripture. And it is shown in the direction of his life. Where the wicked has no concern for that scripture, uh, seeks his own counsel or the counsel of other wicked men, and it is demonstrated in the character of his life. And we drill this into, into our, the heads of our kid as much as we could, that the way of the sinner is a way of folly. It's a way of hardship. It's a way of difficulty. And right now we have two children. We have one who is following the Lord, and you can see uh, blessings in her life that are beyond belief. It, it brings joy to Geneva Eye to see her blessed. We have a son who's gone the opposite way, and you can see the misery. You can see the sorrow. You can see the sadness that is there. His life is complete shambles. Uh, he has nothing. And uh, so... What determines the path, the direction, is how a person responds to the Lord. And I want to apply this to you children. I want you children to listen to me. Because you're at a stage where this is an important decision. It's important for us when we turn 40 or 50. But for you right now, the sooner that you make this decision, 
the better your life will be. I made it at 19, and I wish I would have made it at five or six. I see all that happened to me in my uh, early and late teen years, all that I could have avoided had I made this choice at this time, at that early time. All the hardship, the things that that still bring uh, grief to me in, in my marriage, in my job, in many areas of my life. Now, I know the Lord's forgiven me, but if I could go back and choose before those things happen and be on this path and, and circumvent those things, I would gladly do it. So now is the time for you to consider what path are you going to go down? What path are you going to take? Are you going to listen to the Lord? Are you going to listen to Jesus? Are you going to listen to your elders, to your parents, to those who preach to you? Or are you going to go to the counsel of the wicked and the ungodly? That's the choice the psalmist sets before us here. And he uses the most beautiful language to describe the results of this life, as well as the most terrifying language to describe the life of the wicked. So the choice is yours. What are you going to decide? What choice are you going to make? And don't delay. Don't think, well, I'm five or six, I'm seven or eight. I I can put it off. No, you may not put it off. You may not be able to put it off. You decide now. Today, Paul says to the Corinthians, is the day of salvation. Today is the day that we make that choice. Not weeks, not years, today. And that's the emphasis on the scripture. It is now. Not putting it off till later when it's more convenient now. And if you're serious about it, you will make it now and not say, well, I can put it off till later. No, then you're not serious about the decision. It is to be made now. And that's the message of the psalm. Where the righteous, the way of the wicked. Do you obey God's word? Do you cherish it? Do you listen to it in whatever form it comes in? The words of your parents, words of the preachers, words of your elders. If you listen to it, meditate upon it, delight in it, hear what it says, and apply that to your life. You may not have a perfect life. You may not have everything that you want in life, but you will have a blessed life. A blessed life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the the words that you give us, the clear Uh, distinction, the clear line in the sand that that you've drawn for us, Father, the way, the path of the wicked versus the way of the righteous. And you've told us clearly uh, what this decision centers upon, Father, and whether we obey your word or not. Help all of us, Father, uh, to love you more, to love your word more. Let your spirit work in those here who are here today who may be children, may be adults, who who haven't seen the light, the truth of your word. We pray your, your spirit would open their hearts and eyes to see these things. Lord, to know these things in a real, uh, experiential, life-changing way, Father. We know that is what the Spirit does. He reveals Christ uh, to the righteous and to the unrighteous. The unrighteous so that they can believe and embrace the truth of the gospel, and to the righteous so that we can further love him, obey him, and serve him. So help us, Lord, in whatever situation we're in. If there are any here who are, are, are falling aside, Father, who are considering uh, abandoning the faith, the hope that you've given, that this would stir them up. Father, to to draw near to you again, to come to you uh, for forgiveness and for help, knowing that you do forgive not only the the sinner, Father, not only the righteous, but those who are backsliding. Uh, Forgive them, Father, and bring them to you and restore them uh, to the full glorious fellowship that you promise all those who love your word and meditate upon it. We thank you for these things, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.